Hello and welcome to Kirkpatrick. As we gather online this morning, we gather in praise of God. And as we do, as we pray, as we praise, as we read God's word together, I pray that we would encounter him, our Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray as we gather this morning. Father, what can we say to you as we approach your throne this morning? You have no equal or rival. Our words and our thoughts are so small when compared to you. Expand our faith and give us words as we join together this morning to praise, worship and seek you. May we always walk in the truth that all praise is for you now and forever. Father God, you alone know how hard we have searched for satisfaction in the people and the things of this world, but they are broken and we are too. Forgive us, Lord. You alone can fill our hungry hearts. You alone have love that's like no other. You never change. Open our eyes today, particularly in these weeks before Christmas, when everything around us tries to persuade us that that one gift, that one item of clothing, that one gadget is all we'll ever need. Show us your riches and glory. Help us know you more. May we delight in you alone and cherish you as the one and only thing we will ever need. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, there's no other name like yours. You humbly came and laid on your life. Now you are exalted to the highest place of all. You alone set us free. We want our lives and our breath to make much of your name, the name that is greater than all others. Thank you for listening to our prayers now. Amen. Well, this has been a year of waiting, hasn't it? Um, a year of waiting for normality to resume, waiting for news of employment, waiting for a vaccine, waiting to see our friends and family again, waiting for a diagnosis, waiting to gather together, all of us in our church building to worship God at the same time. And waiting is nothing new. Um, when we look at our Bibles and we turn from the Old Testament, it's quite easy for us to flick over and get into the New Testament, into Matthew's Gospel, which we're reading later on. But it's not as simple as that. It was 400 years between the prophecies in Malachi right through to um, Jesus' birth. 400 years of silence. Silence where God was not speaking and there was complete silence to his people. And you've got to think and you can sympathise and perhaps we ourselves have these questions. Where is God? What is he doing? I can't hear him. Is my life in service to him just a waste of time? But then in that silence, it was mightily broken in the busyness of Bethlehem. There Jesus arrived. God came down. The son of God became the son of man. And that's what we celebrate when we think about Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. From the beginning, the Christmas story has been one of fulfilled longing. And this morning, it should strengthen our faith and give us reason to celebrate the goodness of God. As we struggle with our own sense of silence and strain to see God in our waiting and in the darkness, Christmas urges us to focus on God, that he comes through on his promises. And we celebrate the arrival of the light of the world. Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azur, Azur the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matham, Matham the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. This is God's word. Good morning. This morning I get to preach my last normal sermon for you here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. I will get to speak at a carol service next Sunday and at a farewell service on Sunday the 3rd of January. But in terms of just opening up God's word and bringing a, a normal kind of address, uh, this is the last chance I get to do that. I want this morning to do, uh, to start, sorry, to finish where I started and to complete what I've been doing all along. And that is to, to point you once more to Jesus, to invite you to come to him and to relate to him in the right way. There's a saying that you can choose your friends, but that you can't choose your family. Can you imagine what it'd be like if you could choose your family? Imagine being shown the the huge, uh, the vast sea of humanity and being asked to take your pick. You get to choose how smart your parents are, where you will live, how wealthy your family will be, which community you grow up in how much influence you and your family will have. That choice of a family would say a lot about us, wouldn't it? It would show what's important to us and what we really want out of life. Since it's true that we can't choose our family, we might be wondering why I'm asking this question at all. It's because it's Christmas time. It's because we're about to celebrate the birth of the one person in history who did get to choose the family that they were born into, and that is Jesus Christ. 
God come among us. When God came to be with us, he got to choose which family he would be born into. We said a moment ago that if we did get to choose our family, it would say a lot about us, about what's important to us, about what we want out of life. Well, let's apply that test today to Jesus, God come among us. As we look at his family tree this morning, in these opening verses of Matthew's Gospel, let's see what kind of a family he chooses to join, uh, what kind of people they are, and let's see what we can learn about what's important to him. As we look at Jesus' family tree this morning, we're going to notice three things. His humanity, his identity, and also his mission. So first of all, his humanity. The very existence of this family tree points to Jesus' humanity. It reminds us that he was human. Our theology tells us that Jesus was at the same time both fully God and fully human. But for most of us, we struggle most of the time to accept his humanity. This family tree, this long list of names of real people, reminds us that he really was human. Jesus had a a mum, didn't he? Mary. At the time of his birth, she was probably still a teenager. And although his birth was unique, conceived as he was by the Holy Spirit, Mary carried him for nine months. Did you ever consider that she may have had morning sickness? That during the last uh, weeks of Jesus' uh, time in her womb, uh, she may have struggled uh, to get sleep as she struggled to find a comfortable position in bed. We know that Jesus didn't cry at his birth. Uh, the carol away in a manger assures us of that. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Says who? What about his mum? Did she cry at his birth, giving birth to her firstborn uh, without an epidural, without any gas in the air? Did Mary cry at Jesus' birth? Of course she did. She was a a normal mother carrying a real baby and delivering him in a normal birth. Jesus was fully human. He was born into Joseph's family. Jacob was his granddad. Was old Matin still alive uh, to greet his great-grandson? We don't know. Folks, here we see the great miracle of Christmas. God born as a human into a normal human family. I think we should take great comfort from that. Our God knows all about our lives because he lived a life very much like ours. So the family tree, by its very existence, speaks of Jesus' humanity. Second, the family tree, by its structure, speaks of Jesus' identity. In these first 17 verses of his gospel, Matthew immediately sets about answering the identity question. Who is Jesus? Well, he's a descendant of Abram. Matthew records Jesus' family tree right back to Abram. And in doing so, he shows us that God has kept the promise to Abram that we've been learning about. 
in our studies in Genesis these last few months. This baby boy is also descended from David, we're told, verse 6. David was Israel's greatest king. But he's not just any descendant of Abraham and of David. Matthew's genealogy is arranged in such a way that Jesus comes at the beginning of a seventh group of seven generations since Abraham. In Jewish culture, the, the number seven is the number of completeness or fulfillment. So when Jesus is the seventh, seventh, he's completing all the promises of the Old Testament. He's the true descendant of Abraham, the true Israelite. He's the true descendant of David and therefore Israel's long-awaited for long waited for king or messiah actually in case we miss it in matthew's carefully structuring of the genealogy matthew spells all of this out for us in the opening verses of his gospel he gives jesus identity away right in the opening verse he says this is the genealogy of jesus the messiah the son of david and the son of abram he's the true israelite and he's the promised king. So we've learned about Jesus' uh, humanity from the very existence of this family tree. And from its structure, we've learned about Jesus' identity. Finally, by paying some careful attention to the content of this family tree, we can pick up some startling clues as to Jesus' mission. Matthew's beginning right at the outset of his gospel to answer the why question. Why did Jesus come? The clues are in the, the content, in the list of names in this genealogy. Let's not be intimidated by these 42 generations of Jewish names. Let's see if there's anything in here that catches our attention. We've already noticed that the genealogy begins back with Abram. We know him pretty well here at Kirkpatrick Memorial these days. We've been keeping company with him uh, for the last three months in our series of studies in, in Genesis. We've seen how he learned to live by faith in the end, but, but not without many failures along the way. In fact, we called him at, at some points along the way the father of the failing faithful. Who else is on this list? Jacob's here. The guy who swindled his brother in order to gain the inheritance. Judah's here. Uh, remember how he sold his brother Joseph into slavery? Reading on down the list, we get to see that God's joining a family uh, of David. David who committed adultery and who murdered uh, a woman's husband so that he could get what he wanted. One more thing, a question for the women in our congregation today. How did that Bible reading land with you? I'm sure you noticed that Matthew's record of Jesus' family focuses on the men. Uh, by the way, that's exactly what you would expect in those days. Uh, family trees didn't mention women's names. Actually, that's what makes Matthew's record of Jesus family tree so interesting we'll find that there are women's name 
women's names on this list. Four women get a mention. Four times Matthew breaks with convention in order to tell us about women in this male-dominated list. First of all, there's Tamar, verse 3. You may not know her story too well, but you could read it if you wish in Genesis 38. She was a daughter-in-law of Judah, one of Israel's great leaders. Her husband died. And in the culture of the day, it was uh, Judah's responsibility to get her a new husband, someone to to care for her and provide for her and to, to keep her from poverty. Judah didn't do it. He didn't provide Tamar with a new husband. In a scandalous story, we learn that she resorted to pretending to be a prostitute. She ends up getting pregnant, but that's not the worst of it. The real scandal is that Tamar gets pregnant by none other than Judah himself. This leader in the people of God, and he's made the use of an anonymous prostitute. It's a completely sordid episode in the history of Israel. Then there's Rahab, a second woman in this genealogy. You might remember her from Sunday school. She was the woman who let Joshua spies into the city just before the Battle of Jericho. In Sunday school, she was presented like an innkeeper. We might think of her as some ancient Airbnb hostess with her, her photograph smiling down from the the Jericho City Tourist Board website. That's not how the Bible uh, presents her. It's more likely that she was a prostitute. The next woman in the family tree is Ruth, verse 5. Do you remember the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz? Ruth is the foreign daughter-in-law Naomi brought back after her family emigrated to Moab. She's uh, an immigrant, uh, a member of an ethnic minority grouping. The final woman in the family tree is simply referred to as Uriah's wife, verse 6. In case you don't remember, great King David committed adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And then he had Uriah killed as part of a cover-up. David's relationship with Bathsheba and his behaviour throughout the whole incident and after it is a huge blot in the life of Israel's greatest ever king. This detailed look at Jesus' family tree certainly hasn't been time wasted. It's been very informative. It seems like Jesus has more than his fair share of skeletons in the closet. Remember what we're doing here. We're taking account of the fact that Jesus got to choose or God got to choose which family he would be born into. And we're trying to work out then what that family tree tells us about God. What's important to him? What does he really want out of life? It seems to me by looking at this family tree that God wanted to be with sinners. It was important to him to get among real, broken, failing, sinful people. It seems like he wanted to spend his life among them. 
As we read on in the story, we'll learn that Jesus wasn't ever happy just to spend his life with sinners. He wouldn't be content until he gave his life for them on the cross to bring them back to God. So there we have it. Jesus' mission. Why did he come? He came to rescue sinful people and bring them back to God. Whenever Jesus got to choose his family, he started where he meant to carry on, living among sinners so that he could die for them. Isn't it wonderful? Since this is one of the last occasions on which I get to preach for you, uh, perhaps you'll forgive me a little self-disclosure. This passage, it's been working on me for a while. It's, it's stirred something in me. It's, it prompted me to want to, to say, I am a sinner. There, I've said it. But somehow just saying that doesn't seem enough. I want to say some more this morning. I'm a sinful sinner. Some of you, you strike me as, as really quite good people. You know, you're good at being good. I've realized over the years that that I'm a bottom of the class kind of a guy. I, I'm not good at being good. It doesn't come naturally to me. Sinning comes naturally to me. I'm a sinful sinner. But that's, that's not the worst of it. I'm a, a sinful sinner who sins. I actually think bad thoughts, lots of them, and do wrong things on an, on an alarmingly regular basis. My sinning isn't occasional. I, I'm sinning all the time. I might succeed in hiding it from you occasionally, but but not from God. And to round things off, I'm a sinful sinner who sins sinfully. And what I mean by that, some of my sinning isn't accidental. Sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes I choose to sin regardless of the likely consequences. I do damage. I wreak havoc. I'm a sinful sinner who sins sinfully. So there it is. I'm the noun, but I, I need the adjective. I do the verb, but I, it takes the adverb to fully do justice to my sinning. When it comes to sinning, I need you to know I'm the real deal. You might notice that even after that appalling and uncomfortable self-disclosure that I'm still smiling. How's that? How can I possibly be smiling after I've just told you how thoroughly sinful I am? Here's why. When I admit I'm a sinner, I get Jesus. Jesus Christ came into this world to live among and to die for sinners. If I'm a sinner, 
and I'm willing to admit it, I get Jesus. Perhaps you'll allow me a pastoral observation at this point. In my experience, the greater a person's willingness to own that they're a sinner, the greater a person's joy in and their love for Jesus. Little sinners or people who have only a small sense of their own sin seem to have a small experience of Jesus and little joy in him. Big sinners, that is people who admit that they're thoroughly sinful, they seem to get much more from Jesus and seem to be much happier in him. I wonder if that's what Paul was thinking of. I wonder if that's what he had in his mind when he said in First Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. When he said about being a sinner and said that he was the worst, he didn't mean that he'd been to the sinning world championships and that he'd won gold. He simply meant that he had the greatest possible sense of his own sinfulness. And that as a result, the forgiveness that God offered him in Jesus Christ gave him the greatest possible joy. Big sinners have big smiles. It's an elusive kind of joy, this joy that I'm talking about. It's reserved only for sinners. Have you ever noticed how angry we get Sometimes while we're feeling self-righteous. When we're feeling self-righteous, if somebody ever challenges us, we blow up. Why? Because in that moment, we're not sinners. At least not in our own estimation. You see, it's while we're feeling so very self-righteous, so very, very sure that we're right. It's only then that we can feel so terribly wronged. It's our self-righteousness that robs us of our joy, that feeds our anger. It's different when we know we're sinners. When somebody challenges us, when somebody points out where we've gone wrong, we simply smile and we say, you're disappointed in me. Join the club. So am I. I said this morning that I wanted to spend my last normal sermon with you talking about Jesus and inviting you to come to him, whoever you are, to come and to follow him. Now that we've had a look at his family tree and we've learned why Jesus came, I think we're clearer about what form Jesus' invitation takes. He's asking us, you and me, whether we'll give up our self-righteousness and accept that we're sinners. Whether we'll let him save us from our sins. If you're up for that, why don't you join me as I join with the Apostle Paul and I say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Did you say it?
No? Okay. This time, join with me and say it out loud. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. What about making that, for the rest of this Advent season, a very short memory verse? Seeing it daily, maybe a number of times per day. And let's notice, as we do, how this confession, this willingness to say that we're sinners, doesn't just wet our appetite for Jesus, the baby born in Bethlehem. We'll celebrate his birth on Christmas Day, knowing that he came to save us from our sins. God bless you. We're going to spend some time now in prayer together. So let's let's pray together. Lord God, we start by giving you thanks for Christoph, for Claire, Patty, Sophie and Ruby. Lord, thank you for the leadership and wisdom brought by Christoph and Claire here over the past 16 years. Lord, continue to use them as they enter this new chapter in service to you. Lord, continue to use the Ebbing Houses to reflect you in the years ahead. We pray that your name, your fame and your renown would be known in Ballyhackamore, in Bangor and beyond our borders. We pray, Lord, for the leadership team here at Kirkpatrick, for our elders. Grant them wisdom, Lord, true insight and understanding as they seek to lead us and discern your will for our teaching and leading here at Kirkpatrick. Lord, this year has been a disruptive year, giving us all a small flavour of what it is to be vulnerable. Yet for many in developing countries, they are continually vulnerable and susceptible to the threat of disease, of hunger and of violence. Compassionate God, while children suffer with hunger and malnutrition, in desperate need of food, may we refuse to look away. Unite us in our desire to help. While families stand thirsty, waiting for rain, may we stand with them. Unite us in our wait for justice. While mothers walk through treacherous conditions to escape violence, may they find refuge and not be forsaken. Unite us with our sisters' struggle. May we do our part, giving what we can, lifting them to you, trusting that your compassion never fails. Lord Jesus, you promise that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled, but we pray today for those who simply hunger for food and thirst for water. In our fractured world of rich and poor, create a desire for change and a passion for justice. May that begin with us. Lord of all, hear the cry of the oppressed, the exploited, the hungry and the homeless, helping us to hear it too. Lord, we recognise that many of us in our daily lives are in need, whether through the busyness of our lives, restrictions of poor health, the loneliness of our circumstances. Lord, help us by opening our eyes to those in such situations. Grant us listening ears and caring hearts and hands to respond. Lord, we lift up the Aikens to you now, Al, Rachel and Lena. Lord, we pray for Elena. Lord, surround her with your protection. Lord, we pray for healing and for strength for this little girl. With so much going on, we pray for stability. We pray that you would work through the medical team, giving them wisdom as they make decisions regarding medication and intervention. Lord, sustain Al and Rachel in these coming days. Protect them from physical tiredness and assure them of your love for them and the love of their immediate and church families. 
Lord, we pray too for the Grahams, for George and Alice. Lord, sustain George in these difficult days. Lord, in the waiting, in the unknowns ahead with health and treatments, we pray that you give them grace to trust you. Lord, grant them peace, experiences of your love and care for the road ahead. We pray that they and, and we ourselves may trust you with your timing, trust you to heal the hurt, trust you to illuminate the darkness, trust you to restore joy, trust you to speak your word, trust you to supply sufficient grace and divine power for facing whatever comes. Thank you for stepping down from heaven through your son, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for your mission to love your people and the love that we could never earn or deserve. Thank you for your amazing, unconditional love. Through a babe, Jesus, you were born Lord at your birth. Angels escorted you as you arrived in the manger, kings bowing down before you. We too surrender our lives to you, giving you the good and the bad. May we trust you with our present and our future. Servant Jesus, be in our hearts today. Father, you are everlasting. You are a light to the nations. Shine in and through us. By your grace and according to your mercy, open the eyes of those who walk in darkness. Give us boldness to proclaim the light we have found in you in the darkest places. It is for your fame, your renown, your glory and your praise that we live. Send us out, Lord, into this week and festive season, shining brightly and sharing the greatest gift of all, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hi folks, let me share very quickly a few announcements. First of all, just to say that we're delighted uh, that we're able to host face-to-face -face gatherings uh, once more. We're back to where we were three weeks ago when we had started uh, a second service each Sunday. Uh, we hope to be able to host two services every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 11.30 for the foreseeable future. H have a look at this week's email for the attendance rota and for details about signing up and attending. We're also delighted that we finally managed to get our Christmas program uh, sorted uh, and planned. Uh, we've got two uh, events really that we need you to be thinking about and planning for and booking into. Next Sunday, the 20th of December, we're hosting four carol services. Um, and then on Christmas Day, we hope to have a couple of gatherings. Uh, check your email for details about how to sign up for those. And if you're somebody who can't get online, uh, the way to sign up is simply to phone the church office and book through that. I should say we've planned for a very large capacity uh, for both of these services. So please don't hold back. Uh, signing up. Don't don't be thinking I'll I'll not go uh, because I want other people to have my place. We've got room for everyone, uh, so go ahead, sign up, bring your family and your friends. Uh, bear in mind that for many people, 2020 has been a really isolating experience. Wouldn't it be great if the year could end with a highlight uh, for folks like that? where they were invited along to a gathering where they got to sing and to celebrate uh, the coming of Jesus into the world. We've created uh, a Facebook and an Instagram post to help you share uh, those invitations with your friends. Please continue to pray for Lena Aiken and George Graham. Uh, 
We were sorry this week, too, to learn of the death of Audrey Fleck on, on Friday, the 4th of December. Pray for her children, Jean, Alan and Ian. Please do get a look at the weekly email. Uh, you'll see lots of other stuff in there, including an update from Home for Good, telling a great story from our own congregation and a lovely video. You'll also see opportunities to give to ASHA, to the Moderator's Appeal and to Storehouse. Advent simply means arrival. In the case of Christmas, the arrival of Jesus, the ultimate, the greatest gift given to the world. Down the slope, in a place where animals took shelter, there Jesus was born, our Saviour, who came to take away the sins of the world. And into the busyness of the census called by Caesar Augustus, into the busyness of life, a miracle happened. Christ arrived. The blessing of God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit be with you as you go into the busyness of this week and this Christmas season. May we all walk in God's light, rejoice in God's love and reflect God's glory. Amen.